0: Well, good morning. It's great to uh, see you all. It's wonderful as always to be here in this chapel together. And, uh, you know, there is a sense of the seasons that overtakes us regardless of whether we're consciously thinking about them or not. I uh, stepped out this morning uh, just right here in front of the chapel and, again, was just struck by the beauty of the trees and the the morning sun, you know, just uh, shining on them and through them. And uh, then here we are in the month of November, and what that reminds us of is that the semester, it always begins with a certain rhythm and ends with a different rhythm. And uh, we feel that ending coming. And uh, I know we all are committed to end well. And uh, there's nothing more important we can do than to gather together, like this, as Boys College and Southern Seminary in worship, and to be confronted by the Word of God. And this morning I would direct you to Deuteronomy chapter 6, and I, uh, I want us to look at this passage very much in light of some of the continual, permanent challenges that Christians face, that God's people face, and in terms of some of the perhaps most pressing. While the world is talking about headlines and, and not not inappropriately so. There is big news out there around the world. There are happenings, there are controversies, there are issues, but for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, for God's people, there is the security of hearing from God, which we do right now, Deuteronomy chapter 6. Now, this is the commandment, the statutes, and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with with great great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, and when you eat, and are full. Then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test, as you tested him in Massah. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes which he has commanded you. And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord that it may go well with you and that you may go in and take possession of the good land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers by thrusting out all your enemies from before you as the Lord has promised. When your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord your God, our God, for Our good always that he might preserve us alive as we are this day and it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he has commanded us it's an amazing passage and you know that this is Deuteronomy the final book of the Pentateuch the final book of the books of Moses You know that this is, in essence, a final word from Moses. As the children of Israel, having been brought out of captivity to Pharaoh in Egypt, are to be brought into the land of promise, you know that Moses will not be among them. This is the final oration or set of orations from Moses. It is, of course, not ultimately from Moses, but from God himself who speaks through his prophet Moses to the children of Israel in order that they may go and possess Canaan and yet not become Canaanites. That's the issue. What must Israel hear? What must Israel know in order to go into Canaan and yet not become Canaanites? Much of the early third of the... Old Testament is comprised of the account of that conquest and of the, of the monarchial history, of course, of Israel, and also of the, the dangers that Israel faced. And then we understand that Israel faced dangers, of course, from without, but the greater danger to Israel came from within. And it was the danger that having gone into Canaan, Israel was continuously tempted to become Canaanite. And it's not like they weren't warned in advance, and we see this, we see this long before Deuteronomy. But Deuteronomy, Deuteronomos, it's uh, so vitally important because it's the second giving of the law. Deutero, second, nomos, law. Why did the law have to be given a second time? It is because when the law was given first in Exodus, It was given to a generation that would eventually sin against God and be sentenced to die in the wilderness rather than to enter the land of promise. Their children would be able to enter the promised land. And for their children, the law is recapitulated. Now on the brink of the River Jordan, on the brink of the conquest, on the brink of the promise, The law is given to this generation as it was given to the generation of their fathers and mothers. But their fathers and mothers, having rebelled, will die outside the land of promise. It is their children and their children's children that will enter the land. Thus, when the commandments have been given, as you see in Deuteronomy chapter five, Moses continues and what we see as as Deuteronomy chapter 6. And he does what might be unexpected. Or let me put it this way. Maybe it should be unexpected. Maybe one of the distinctions we should notice between the first giving of the law in Exodus and the deuteronomos, the second giving of the law in Deuteronomy, is that what follows the second giving of the law is an explanation of the distillation or the summation of the law into one law. Moses speaks of the commandments, and yet he often will refer to the commandments as the commandment. He does so at the very end of Deuteronomy chapter 6 to do all this commandment. By the way, it is also interesting to note that in most English translations, uh, quite accurately, the verb here is do. It's how Deuteronomy six opens. It's how Deuteronomy six closes. It's not just obey the commandments, as in some kind of surrender to them as a least common denominator. It's it's rather don't just obey them. Do them. It's a far more comprehensive verb, and it's a far more comprehensive obedience and faithfulness. It is to do them in terms of not only the external requirements of the law, but the internal reality of the law itself. you saw how the text begins. It begins with promise, and the promise, of course, is also in warning, as becomes even more heightened at the end of Deuteronomy. Choose life and live, obey and live, disobey and die, that kind of promise is certainly here, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, that your days may be long." So who's you when, when he says you and your sons and your sons' sons, he's not speaking backward to the generation of rebellion, he's speaking forward to the generation of conquest. You, you and your sons and your sons' sons. You, you and your children and your children's children. At some point you reach a certain age where they hit you all the more powerfully. When your children have children. And then some get to see their children have children have children. That's the patrimony and the matrimony the Lord has promised us, the fulfillment of the promise. We were told in the very first chapter of Scripture to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That glorifies God. It should also make us exceedingly happy but it also points to the intergenerational charge and commission and responsibility to obedience. It's not enough. It is failure for God's people. It was failure for Israel and it will be failure for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. If this generation does the commandments of God and our children do not and our children's children do not, That is failure. Moses, speaking as the Lord speaks to him, speaks very clearly. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you. I love that, that it may go well with you. Multiply greatly as the Lord your God, the God of your fathers, has promised you. And what a sweet promise, a land flowing with milk and honey. How many commandments are there? 636 according to the rabbis, putting everything together from Torah, or here we have 10, the the 10 commandments, and the the 10 commandments are easily memorable. They have become, through the course of the last 2,000 years, one of the most basic units of Christian teaching. I often often remind congregations of the fact that even in the Reformation, when uh, such a distinction was made between law and gospel. You know, Martin Luther early in the Reformation said that you should not teach the law. Teach only the gospel. Don't 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 teach the law. Uh, and and that still is a very basic instinct in many ways in Lutheranism, right down till today. But nonetheless, Luther had to change his entire approach to understanding the relationship between law and gospel when he had a son. He could not raise that boy merely by gospel. Needed law. Choose ye this day whether you live or die. Obey or disobey that it may go well with you in the land of promise or in the Luther house. In his little catechism, Luther thus defies his own early instinct in the Reformation to give priority only to the gospel when very early on in that catechism, the child is addressed with the words, hear, little child, the law of God. And it is the Ten Commandments, a summary of the law. I want to do something fun with you today. I want to suggest to you that in the Bible, there is some strange math. In the Bible, very strange math. And I want you to think about the math in these terms Ten equals one equals two. All right? Don't try that in a math class. Just try it in the scripture. Ten equals one. Moses says here in Deuteronomy chapter six, verse four, Shema, here, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might, and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontless between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So there are ten commandments and they are summarized in one command. The summary of all that has been said, and it's the summary of all the law that will be given, the sum and substance of it all. here, Shema, hear, O Israel. And it's based upon the identity of God. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Therefore, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. So 10 equals 1. 1 equals 10. The entirety of the law is distilled here into one commandment, which we often refer to as the greatest commandment it became the central commandment of Israel it is the verse in the box it is the text in the phylacteries it is it is the central Text of Israel's existence. It is the text of the covenant, the the text that defines how Israel is distinct from all the other peoples of the earth. It is the text that distills the gospel down to its essence. And it is a text that revolutionizes from chapter 5 to chapter 6 because the commanding, authoritative, invigorating verb is not obey but love. it is perhaps too familiar to us. The great command is that we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart and mind, excuse me, might. All our heart and soul and strength. The shocking part is the word love. I, um, I found myself asking a question that I have not... I've not been able to answer. And so I am giving an invitation and issuing a plea to our outstanding biblical studies faculty to help me with this, particularly professors of Old Testament. I have been looking for information on the Canaanite deities and in the background of the Canaanite system of idolatry in order to find out if there was language about loving idols. My suspicion is that there is no such language. My suspicion is that if we were somehow to get into the Canaanite cultus in terms of investigation, I think it's very unlikely that the verb love or any similar cognate is going to appear within that. It's also very interesting as you look at different religious systems in the world and you consider their reference to some sort of deity, you will notice the lack of any context for the main verb to be love. What does it tell us? And if we're not surprised by this, Every time we see it, there's something wrong with this, I think. That what God demands of us more than anything else is love. Now, that love is translated into obedience. We should love the Lord our God with all our heart and soul and strength. Now, there's some complications there, too, because... Hebrew, anatomy and physiology was not exactly ours either. So don't think of anatomy and physiology. They did know that when, the, when one is excited, one's heart races. Or when perhaps one is smitten, one's, one's heart flutters. Something's going on in the heart. The heart is the seat of loyalty, And in the Hebrew psychology or or physiology and understanding of of anatomy, the heart was often the, the seat of reason as well. And you put that together with soul. You put together with strength. It basically just is a comprehensive statement. We are to love the Lord our God with everything we are. But it leads with heart. And the verb is love. The Shema, the greatest command. If we do this, we do, not just will, if we do this, we do fulfill all the other commands. If in every dimension of our lives, we love the Lord our God with all our heart and with all our soul and with all our might, we will do and cheerfully, joyously do all that the Lord has commanded. On the other hand, if the law remains for Israel or if the law remains for us, even in our understanding of obedience and sanctification, if the law remains in our minds, that law perfectly fulfilled in Christ, if it remains for us something merely external, then we're missing the point. If it remained external for Israel, then this generation and their children and their children's children would be just as rebellious and just as wayward as the generation of their parents and grandparents. You'll notice the text follows and we will turn to that in just a moment the so what so how how is this to be honored in Israel how is how is this great commandment to be put into life what does that look like in the life of Israel and thus the lesson for us will be also what does it look like in the life of the church but before we turn to that i go back to the strange math 10 equals 1 10 commandments 1 commandment 2 commandments Matthew chapter 22. As we've heard, when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So 10 became one and one became two. 10 equals one. One equals two. And Jesus is explicit in what he says here in answering this very, very dishonest Pharisee, because central to the understanding of the Pharisees was the entirety of the Old Testament law, including Deuteronomy 6, including the Shema, including the fact that it was the central and greatest commandment, and yet he dares to come to Jesus to ask him this. The Sadducees, having been silenced, he put Jesus to the test. And the easiest thing for Jesus to have responded here would have been the way any Jewish man should have responded and that is simply by going to Deuteronomy 6:4 and stating the verse. But Jesus in his sovereignty actually goes beyond and of course goes to Leviticus chapter 19 verse 18, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, lifts that verse not out of absolute obscurity but out of what was certainly a lack of attention in terms of any comparison or linkage to Deuteronomy 6.4, and he puts them together and he says, this is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like unto it. Upon these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Ten equals one, but one equals two. And of course, this was not only Jesus's Answer, which is also a rebuke to this Pharisee, it is also Jesus' answer, which is a command of instruction to his own, to the church. The royal law, the law of Jesus. He perfectly fulfilled the law in every dimension, and thus we are saved but he also gives us a law. And thus, the moral content of the law is recapitulated in the New Testament. It is fulfilled in such a way that Christ's people are called not to a lesser law, but to a higher law. And yet, there's continuity in that law. There's continuity in the Shema. Hear, O Israel. Hear, O Church of Christ. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. And we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart and soul and says, Jesus, mind. But we dare not stop there because a second is likened to it. We are to love our neighbor as ourselves. Fulfilling the second bears testimony to the first. Obedience to the first requires glad obedience to the second. Where Christ's people are found, we are to be found honoring the great commandment and honoring the neighbor commandment. Both of them animated by love, both of them. We are to love the Lord our God with our heart and all our soul and all our mind, says Jesus, and we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. Again, we might prefer a different verb. Do you know my neighbors? And of course, as we were taught in Sunday school, as Jesus taught his disciples, we are to see everyone as our neighbor. Seriously, love them? At least at a base level, this has to mean imago dei, right? We love God, and thus we love every single image bearer of God. Shema, hear, O Israel. Ten equals one equals two. And if all we had in the law, if all we saw in our understanding of the moral responsibility that falls upon those who have been saved by grace, certainly it is love of God and love of neighbor that should mark The obedience of Christ's people. Well, here we go. Back to Deuteronomy 6. Moses has more to say. And what an oration, what a sermon this is. After giving the command that this verse, this great commandment, is to be so present that the men of Israel are to wear it on their bodies. They are to put it on the doorpost of their house. It is to be so central that they cannot look at their hand, nor, nor can they see another man coming at them without the, the frontlet between the eyes. They see Deuteronomy 6.4 everywhere, and they pass Deuteronomy 6.4 as they walk into their homes, as they sit down and as they rise up. What you see following, I just summarize with three Ds discipline, doctrine, and diligence. The discipline is a moral discipline. It is, a, it is an obedience discipline, and it's very clear. We don't have time to go through the entire passage, but you'll notice that what Moses warns about is the temptation of living in Canaan, first of all, in terms of how the Canaanites live, and, and just falling into dissolution and into disobedience. And The seduction is made very clear. Look at the beautiful language Moses uses. When you go into the land promised, sworn to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob, you're talking about great and good cities that you did not build. You're living in houses full of all good things that you did not fill. You are drinking out of cisterns that you did not dig. You're eating of vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And right now, you are hungry. One day you will be full then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. The discipline of God's people is to be obedience to the commandments of God. The discipline of God's people is to set them apart from all the other peoples of the, of the earth, the, uh, the Canaanites in particular. The discipline, the moral discipline or the, the ethic of the children of Israel is to testify to the holiness of the God who brought them out of Egypt and brought them into Canaan and gave them the land. There is to be a distinctive morality that is grounded in love of God and is made concrete in obedience to the law of God. That is to mark God's people wherever we're found. And the greatest danger comes not when we are hungry, but when we are full. And the, the greatest danger comes not when we are homeless, but when we are housed. And the the great danger comes not when we are insecure, but when we think we are secure. That is when we will be tempted to believe that that law is for someone else or for some other time, not for us. And you'll notice, again, the distinction. The the obedience to God's law is what is to set God's people there in the land of promise apart from all the others. You live by my law. And then, of course, later in in the Old Testament, later in the book of Deuteronomy, there will be further testimony to the sweetness of these laws and the goodness of these laws when the the peoples of the earth look at the laws of Israel and say, what other nation has, has laws so perfect But Israel had to obey those laws for those laws to be seen and evident and thus be the object of wonder. And that's true for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We know this. We, we've known this for some time, but we're living in a moment in which it becomes increasingly apparent that one of the main demonstrations of Christian witness is living by a law though people around us don't understand and don't even at this point admire Consider it to be nothing more than oppression. And our job is to show not only what obedience looks like, but what love of God looks like. Oh, and by the way, that's going to be translated into love of neighbor. Discipline, just how Israel is to live. The second issue is doctrine. And remember that Israel's faults were always in the Old Testament tied to the fact that you're not merely disobeying me. You are in effect, if not in proximate actuality, worshiping an idol. The distinction between the one true and living God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God, the Lord is one. The distinction between the one true and living God, the God of Israel, the God that brought Israel out of captivity to Pharaoh and Egypt and all the other idols of the land in a land filled with idols and idolatrous places of worship and marked by altars in an idolatrous nation, in an idolatrous age, Israel was to stand out not only for its ethic, but centrally for its theology. You have to know who the true God is and serve Him. And that means that all the other gods are false gods. And they must not be worshipped. Rather, they must be exposed for what they are in all of their powerlessness. Frankly, as the Old Testament makes clear, in all their sensuality, in all of their anthropological exaggeration, in all of their foolishness and all of their violence and all of their fecundity israel is to have nothing to do with that is and is instead to worship and to love and to serve the one true and living god theology matters and by the way you will not maintain a christian ethic if you do not maintain christian theology you will not maintain an ethic if you abandon the doctrine. One of the central lessons of looking at Protestant liberalism is they said, let's save the ethic, and so we'll dispense with the doctrine. And once they dispense with the doctrine, the ethic didn't matter. All you have left is empty doctrine in the church and a rainbow flag flying outside the church. There it is. There all that's left. It's so easy among Canaanites in Canaan to become Canaanites ourselves, but the greater danger in conclusion is not just that we understand it's easy for you and for me to become Canaanites. You know exactly what your heart tugs to tell you now. Canaan wants your children. And the Canaanites want your children's children. And that's the real issue for Israel crossing over the River Jordan was not gonna be, will the generation of Joshua keep the doctrine? But will Joshua's children And his grandchildren serve and know and love and obey God. That's the diligence. And the word shows up repeated here. As you see in this text, look at verse 17. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes. And this is what is to be diligently taught to our children. It's to be As you well know, taught when you rise up and when you sit down, when you go out, when you come in. It's a comprehensive teaching by Israel to Israel's children and by their children to their children's children in order that the law of God, the Word of God, the totality of God's Word and revelation may be in our hearts that we may not sin against God. May be in the hearts of our children so that they will not sin against God. We'll be in the hearts of our grandchildren so that they will not sin against God. But if that word is not there, then they are given over to sin. The diligence to which the church is called is the diligence that certainly is the equal of the diligence of Israel. Certainly the diligence to which we are called is not less than this, and this is everything. So brothers and sisters, I just want to tell you in advance, some of you are already parents. Many of you will become parents, and you will have the promise of being grandparents. Maybe more. The stakes are so high, and we understand the current moment We understand that it is going to be unspeakably difficult to see our children and our children's children and their children into the land of promise without becoming Canaanites because the Canaanites want them. And the Canaanites control so much And there is no escaping the Canaanite messaging. And the Canaanites offer unbelievable promises. In one sense, all Israel would have entering Canaan was the Ark of the Covenant and the word of the Lord. And by the way, brothers and sisters, all we have in the fulfillment of this same responsibility is the ark of God, which is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the Holy Scriptures, which are His Word. And uh, we don't wear them by God's command as frontlets between our eyes or phylacteries on our hands. God is not mostly concerned with a box on the doorpost of our house, but I have to believe that if God was this concerned about Israel, he's more concerned about his church, and more concerned about whether or not his word is in the hearts and minds of his people, and through his people to their children, and through their children to their children's children. The main verb is love, and that's shocking but the first verb is here, shema, and we must. Let's pray. Father, we're just so thankful for all you've given us in the entirety of your word, and in particular in this text. Father, may we live it as we love you. To you be the glory, we pray, in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.